Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 81. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, a special guest is all the way from Kansas City, a good friend of mine, a wonderful juggler, Mr. Brian Wendling. Before I talk to Brian, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Check them out and join the IJA today. Well, during this time of quarantine, I'm getting a lot of letters and emails saying that people appreciate the podcast. And I'm glad I'm able to do my part to entertain you during this difficult time. Uh, one person I want to give a shout out to is Jason from Jocularity Art for his very nice email. And you can find out all about the Jocularity Art, which is a great uh, site for juggling art, posters and t-shirts and custom stuff at jocularity.com. Thank you, Jason. Now. Everyone out there in Juggle Land, drop everything. Get ready for Mr. Brian Wenling. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast number 81. My special guest, Mr. Brian Wenling. Hello, Brian. Hey, Dan. Now, I see by my notes that you're considered Kansas City's best juggler. Now, I learned this year from a high government official that there are two Kansas Cities. Which one are you the best juggler in? Very good. Not everybody knows that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I live in Kansas City, Missouri. Kansas City, Kansas is just across the river adjacent to us in a different state. So, and, and even though I call myself that, I, it's just what I put on my website. There's some fine jugglers in this area as well. So, But it was a, a self-chosen title. There was no Kansas City juggling championship that you had to win? No, I didn't win any championships or anything. It's just something I typed in discreetly, yes. Liar! Oh, no, no. Sorry about that. No, I bet you are Kansas City's best juggler. What other jugglers are out there in Kansas City? Who can we compare you to? There's some good younger guys. Jason Devad, who does some uh, great handstand on Rollabola, Giraffe Unicycle, things in that genre. He's one of the guys that's just does some wonderful fire staff manipulation stuff that's just beautiful. So, But there's a lot of people here that do some just fun stuff. So. Now, do you think more people are taking the hobby route now? Or do you see as many people interested in becoming professionals? You know, I don't know. I, there aren't quite as many venues in the same way to kind of, you know, get your chops going. So I think it's it's a little harder to come up. So I would think that maybe there's not quite as many people trying to become a professional as they used to in the past, I'm guessing. I think also you can get more exposure. Like people want to be seen. They want their juggling to be seen. And when we started, you couldn't do YouTube or anything like that. You had to perform if you wanted to have your juggling seen. Now people can do videos, and, and there's other ways to be exposed, uh, have your juggling out there for people. So there's different ways to approach it now, I suppose. There's lots of ways that way, yeah. And I'm not proficient in those. I'm sort of old, previous century in that regard. But actually, I just got phone calls in the last few days. Um, I do a lot of library shows in the summer and festivals, and a lot of libraries, of course, are not open and won't be open. But they're looking for alternative ways of uh, providing programming too so they're looking at live streaming or pre-taped stuff and so i'm having to kind of relook at some of those things too that i haven't really entertained before so, you know every time there's a crisis you kind of have you're forced into a different direction and and new things can happen so that's happening for me too yeah we have a local juggler uh, named Bree crabtree who's been a previous guest a uh, family mm -hmm. entertainer a lot of parties a lot of libraries and it started zooming and live streaming and i mm -hmm. imagine if people want to kind of see where the new normal is going even after when things are let up, restrictions are let up, I think there's going to be more online entertainment, especially personalized custom entertainment. So any, any technical ability or would you have to kind of start from scratch on that? 
I have a little bit of technical ability, but uh, I've never done any live streaming per se, you know, just the Zoom and that kind of thing. But so I think I think I could do it. I just have to kind of get up to it and kind of rethink my approach doing it without an audience or with an audience at a distance. It's a whole different kind of animal. And so I, I, I've, I'm starting to just think about it actually now. So we'll see what happens. Because when you look at entertainment, you kind of think, what do you want from an audience? You want them packed in the room and you want them packed close together uh, if you're doing mm -hmm. comedy. So now we have a new reality of either having no audience or when, the, when shows resume, we might have to perform for audiences that are further apart. And maybe even the use of volunteers might be uh, prohibited. Exactly, exactly. We're entering a new time, but let's go back. Let's not talk about this time yet. Were you born in Kansas City? Where were you born? I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, my dad was in the service, and I was born there. And then I, I had another brother born in South Carolina while he was still in the service. And then they came back on their way to California. And my grandfather had gotten sick, and they stopped in Minnesota to take care of him. And they never made it to California. Otherwise, I'd be your neighbor, I think. And so that's why they sort of ended up there. And that's why I'm there, too. I was there, too. And as a child, were you ever see the circus? Did you see jugglers? Did you have kind of a showbiz family or were they just service and not that interested in the arts? No, my family was a working class family. Very supportive, but working class family. My mom was a little more on the artistic side, but my dad was more into sports and things like that. But I don't remember, but I, I had a, um, a drawing when I was in kindergarten of going to the circus, and they traced our little bodies on brown paper, and we had to fill it in, and it was a picture of a clown. And so I will always think that that was like the little germ that somehow ended up being where I am now. And do you remember having any memory of seeing your first juggler on TV or, or in person? I think, I think my first one was probably... When I was going to university in Minnesota, there's a bridge between the two campuses on the different banks of the Mississippi. And I saw a juggler there who I later found out was a performer at the Renaissance Fair, a local guy called Full Moon. And because of him, I went home and tried to learn with little plastic wiffle balls and that sort of thing, took a community education class. And, and it just sort of started, I think, from his example. Yeah. So you didn't learn to juggle until you were in your early 20s, like 2021 or so? Probably about 19 or 20, somewhere in there, I'm guessing, Some, something like that. And what was your path before then? Did you have a career you were looking at, or did juggling kind of sidetrack it? Or what were you like, and what were your interests before you got into juggling? Well, I was kind of a quiet, studious guy. I did some sports and things, but I was attracted to things, I think, that sort of filled in other parts of my personality. So I wanted to be a social worker, or uh, I was into psychology, uh, that sort of thing. I worked night staff at a facility for special needs adults when I was in college and then an alternative childcare center. So I was sort of in the helping professions and then juggling sort of waylaid all of that. So, But you're kind of an exception because most professional jugglers, I know I started when I was like 13. Of course, you have people mm -hmm. like Gatto who start when they're five or six. But to yep. start, I think Dick Franco was one of those ones who started later and El Gran Picasso. Mm -hmm. So you're going to university, you're going to college, you're studying psychology. You see this juggler, you begin to juggle. When does it kind of take over? When do you say, okay, this is the new direction? Well, by the end of my college career, I was already doing a little performing. There was a gentleman that taught the, this community university class that I took, Mario Lorenz. And at that time, it was the mid-70s, like 76 maybe. They had a thing, a, a federal program called Compass. I forget what the... What it stands uh, for? What yeah. it, 
Yeah, and they provided <laughs> money for performers <laughs> in the community. So he was doing stuff, and he, he let me kind of do shows with him. I mean, all kinds of alternative sites and things like that to encourage the artistic world within the community. So that was sort of my little beginning, and it took me almost two years to finish the rest of my degree. So it took me six years to finish uh, my last two classes, and by then I was already performing more, and that was sort of the path that I was on. And would you call Mario Lorenz kind of like a modern-day Groucho Marx? I mean, if you saw him, <laughs> he looks like a smaller, more compact <laughs> Groucho Marx. I always think of him that way. I, very nice guy, but very eccentric in some ways as well. And he just—he just looks. He always—he always had that Groucho Marx look to me. I don't know why as well. So it's that kind of sideways well, look, so. that kind of like that sideways glance or something. There's very, very Groucho-esque Mario Lorenz. Mm-hmm. He was. He was. And he was working under the name Full. Uh, what was the name of Full? Well, that was someone else, Full Moon. But oh, that's Mario the you saw. The, a class that I took, right, exactly. But you guys put an act together. Your act was called uh, Sideshow, is that right? Yes. Mario and myself and Phil Lindsay were the three that started it, and then other people, a lot of other people kind of came in and out over time. So. And do you feel it, easy, it was easier for you to start as part of a group and with Mario than it would have been to start it by yourself? Was it a big help to kind of have that kind of launching pad? Oh, I could have never done it by myself. I was very shy. Uh, Mario did all the talking for the most part. And it took me a long time. I would chirp in here and there over time, but it took me a long, long time to find a performing voice. So I'm always indebted to him and to so many other people to sort of give me time to kind of be safe on stage and kind of figure those things out. And who were your inspirations as jugglers? Because you had a very unique style. Like one of the things you developed was a very difficult and really advanced two double stick routine way before anybody was even doing that. Who did you see that inspired you, and especially the, for the devil stick? Well, you know, I never saw anybody with the devil sticks, but my, my juggling Bible was Circus Techniques by Javi Burgess because it had all kinds of examples and ideas and, you know, history and props and things. And I saw that, and that was one of the things I tried. And so I just used wooden dowels and taped them, and, and that was sort of the beginning way of doing that so. I didn't have any visual examples, but that was sort of the idea, the impetus for that. Also, other jugglers I saw, um, I saw A. Whitney Brown when I came to, to the Bay Area one time, A. Whitney Brown, who did a wonderful cerebral show with his dog. There's a guy at the cannery that did some juggling as well. Uh, he, I, the first time I ever saw ping pong balls done, popped out of the mouth. My goodness. Well, the Flying Karamazov Brothers. Avner the Eccentric, they were at the Kansas, uh, that Minnesota Renaissance Fair, the first festival I ever worked at. I had never been to one before I worked one, uh, just doing uh, lanes, lane shows, but they were ex- just incredible. Magical Mystical Michael, uh, the Asparagus Valley Cultural Society, which is Penn and Teller, and they had a musicologist with them as well. Those kind of performers, just they were just inspiring. Talk about that period called New Vaudeville, like when all these acts were coming up, the you know, A. Whitney Brown, the Karamazovs. It's interesting that they were in Kansas City. You're talking, oh, you were talking Minnesota Renaissance Fair. Exactly, exactly. How did the Karamazovs get up to Minnesota? Because they're, you know, a, a West Coast act. Were they touring? Oh, no, they killed. Yeah, they toured. Yeah. They did really short shows at the fair. And then they worked at a club. I don't know if you ever heard of it called, it was run by an old, kind of old vaudeville guy near the university called Dudley Riggs. Mm-hmm. And he had all kinds of, it was before stand-up comedy, so he had all kinds of other performers that did that. And so the Karamasovs would work at the fair, and then they'd go and do 
two shows on Saturday night and then Sunday and then the rest of the week as well on a tiny little stage. And they just did wonderful shows back then. I just, I even looked like one of the guys. I looked like Randy, the, the blonde with the long hair at the time, which made me feel good beyond belief. <laughs> I really admired. Their shows were just great. I, I, I still think highly of them. So The Renaissance Fair became a pretty big part of your performing career. Did you automatically like the environment? What do you think when you started working Renaissance Fairs? For me, it was just, just a matter of having a place to do something over and over again with the group and also by myself later on. It became a working ground to try new material, get lots of repetitions with it. And also because I'd, I'd been at the Kansas City Fair for almost 40 years. And because people see you over time, one has to change what one does or add new things. And so the, the pressure, the inspiration of that also pushed me to try new things as well. Whether it was freestanding ladder or rope walking or a Russian cube or any elements like that. Now, the Russian Cube, that's the most recent one. You started to learn that at 58. That's pretty physical, so. though. That's a pretty physical prop. It's the big uh, metal cube, the frame, that you revolve mm -hmm. and spin above you, kind of like a baton, but a, but a cube. Uh, was that something yeah. you made yourself, or did you were able to purchase one of those? Well, I purchased a really nice one from a Canadian circus company. But what happened is, as I was learning it, I, I hit every corner on that on the ground so many times because I'm self-taught with so many things that I destroyed the corners. I had to buy like eight new ones and it was very expensive. So in the end, I sort of jerry-rigged one myself with some tent corners and some wooden dowels that I would spray paint to look like they were metal. And now I can adapt the size to different environments and things so that now I have a little more control over and not expensive repairs when occasionally it does uh, go awry, as they say. Yeah, you're known as a very versatile juggler, everything from the freesetting ladder, rope tricks, pretty much every type of juggling. Did you ever think about becoming a specialist? Because we always saw people come up, whether it was the balls, rings, and clubs for like an Ignatov or, you know, like a Gato or someone like, or even someone who's a single prop like a Bob Bromson. Were you always attracted by doing all the props or how did you get to be so versatile? I think I just like learning new things. Even now I try to, it's a little harder as you get older to put the time in, but it, it's the kind of thing I just always enjoyed. The sense of discovery when you first learn how to do something is fun. And then also that discovery when you can do something you thought you could never do. And then you kind of get that little opening and go through there. That's always has been the part that's just interested me. And I'm not sure exactly why, but that, I think that's why I have a broad range. Not a lot of depth in any particular things. So a few tricks here and there, but uh I think the variety has always attracted me, even now. I mean, I love Chris Kramer. I mean, I think he is just oh, one mm -hmm. of the and Bob Bramson too. They are just incredible. I can watch their videos forever. I just was never that. I maybe because I started late and wasn't well trained or self-taught, and and I think just the attraction of a lot of different props was what kept me going, keeps me going even today. What's one trick that you're able to do that when you started you never thought you'd be able to get? Probably, well, the cube in some ways was one of those. I'd, I had a wrist injury about three months into it, so I had to wait six months to come back to it again. Also, was the injury because of the cube or something outside the cube? You know, I'm not sure. As you get older, you get things and they just sort of happen. So more of an overuse thing than, a, than an accident, kind of more of an overuse type syndrome? It could be, I think. I could be, yeah. Uh, the freestanding ladder was one that took me about six months just to be able to climb and straddle. I did that in an old tennis court. I had little ropes I put around me, and I would face the netting. 
of the tennis court and then turn sideways and then turn away and then I would take the rope away so I built up incrementally. I had a very serious accident with that about four years ago. So now I just climb up one side, but I don't do the leg straddle. I didn't, I come down. My wife says she'll kill me if I try it anymore. So I sort of, I've kind of tep- taken a step away from that, but I still use it a little bit in my shows. Do you think the freestanding ladder is more dangerous than the, like a giraffe unicycle? Is it harder to juggle yeah. on, a, on a ladder than it is on a unicycle? Oh yeah, I think so. I think it's, I think it's more difficult. Just, I think the freestanding ladder in itself is more dangerous. So with a, at least with, even with a uni, even a six footer, a taller one would be more dangerous, but yeah. a six footer, seven footer, you can come to the ground anytime you want, but the, the ladder, you get distracted, you come down a bad way. Even somebody that's really good can have something can happen. I think Tui had an injury with that, that he described. And he, I'm sure he's fine now, but mm-hmm. you know, even, and he's like, one of the best I've ever seen. So, I mean, even the best can happen, have that happen. So, Yeah, Tui Wilson, because he also would stand on the top. Like, he'd have the, the, the kind of pedals or, or surface, like a small, like, foot-shaped things he'd put on the very top of the ladder, kind of like Popovich. Exactly. Did you ever do it that way, or did you always just straddle it? No, I had, I had the footings, but I never went that high. I learned to a certain level, was able to juggle or do whatever I wanted to do, and then I just would sort of move on to the next prop. So that was sort of my interest in the new thing again, I think. Do you think Tui has something missing, a little crazy, or what's wrong with Tui Wilson? <laughs> no, nothing's wrong. He's, he's one of the most creative performers yeah. I've ever seen. He puts his own stamp on things, and he's still even now – you know, yeah, he's in his fifties, I guess. He, I'm sure he wants to perform as long as he can, as technically as he can, and I admire that. You know, I just, I really do. It takes a lot of drive, and if, you still have to enjoy it because if it, if it becomes totally work, then you'll just never do it, or you'll just end doing it. So I can see the joy. Even his postings now, he's working on a skateboard on a ramp and juggling three <laughs> balls, and he's, he posts those every once in a while. And it's like, you know, he's still plugging away even though he's in uh, quarantine so that's pretty cool yeah i want to give you a compliment because there's guys like you and tui you're kind of the unsung heroes of juggling you're the guys who go out there and do a great job you're not the the most well-known or the guys who've been on tv the most but you're the guys who go out there when people see juggling they like it they go i like juggling you're the guys who are good representations of juggling because you're good performers good jugglers and you know how to do it you know how to present it that people will enjoy it. So that's my little bit of a pat on the back because I'm really, really impressed by you because you've always been a very consistent guy, a nice guy, and a super good juggler. Well, that's that's very <laughs> kind. I, I'm kind of a blue-collar guy, and it's hard for me to take any compliments occasionally, as my wife will attest to, and so I appreciate that. That's but you deserve kind. it. You deserve it. And speaking of blue-collar, you even had a blue-collar juggling name. Like at the Renaissance Fair, somehow you became not Brian the juggler, but Bob. The Incredible Juggler. What's the, uh, the the renaissance or the uh, impetus of becoming Bob, the Incredible Juggler? Well, when Sideshow first started, Mario Lorenz mm-hmm. said, we all have to have performing names. So <laughs> so mine, I used to be Roberto, the Incredible, and then it's Robert, and then it was Bob. And mm-hmm. so, uh, and I never had a nickname in real life. If anyone calls me Bob when I'm out in the world somewhere, I know they know me from a renaissance type fair, because that's the only time I use that name. So it just kind of came from 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 the, that kind of history so and even your friends would, would call you bob sometimes it would became sort of a, a an identity well scott burton used to call me bobo and no mm. one else ever called me bobo i don't know where he called me bobo but he used to call me bobo so i always liked that yeah barry used to call me ziggy which i never really liked <laughs> so oh really 
I think where did that like, come from? I think from Ignatov, like uh, Iggy, oh. and then it became, or did he call me Iggy? One of the two, I, I didn't, after a certain point, I'm like, please stop calling me that. So it didn't, it didn't quite <laughs> stick. <laughs> hey, let's talk a little about uh, Scott Burton, because was he also a member of Sideshow? Because he became uh, your partner. How'd you meet him and, and how'd you partner up? A few years later. Yeah, mm-hmm. he, he uh, auditioned and or they, anyway, he became part of the group. And he was pretty young. He probably was 20, maybe, I think, when he started, something like that. So, And he came from like a wrestling background, that kind of sport background, and he was always very physical in his juggling. And, and really, he was such a creative guy in his style, you know, very, very unique. So whenever we did our team juggling sorts of things, I mean, that's because of him. I think that's why we had so much success is because he had a creative eye to it. He would kind of push us to do more and more. You know, I used to stand on his shoulders. We did some up and down juggling occasionally. And, and the thing that blew me away on that is he would, if we dropped a club, he would squat down while I was on his shoulders, pick it up and then stand up again. I mean, it's like, oh. so, and he was a good guy. He was a Minnesota guy. We were both similar in that regard, similar sensibilities. So we got along whenever you work with someone that's important too. So, so I, so I valued those times. He really helped me a lot. He was one of those people on stage that helped me to continue so that I could uh, keep doing it for a long period of time. Yeah, he was a solid guy. Like, didn't he have an act one time in the, in the it was called The Working Man Juggler. He came out like a, in a you know, a, a wife beater shirt and a, and a hard hat. And he was a working man, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, he came from that same kind of thing. He worked that attitude. Yeah, sure. You know, and then when he, he had had cancer, like around 91, and uh, it was pretty bad, and he, he survived it. And so he started doing work more in um, sort of cancer-related environments, medical groups, survivorship, pharmaceutical, using a lot of cancer material, very dark, but very funny, I thought. And then it would do like 15 minutes of juggling at the end to kind of surprise them and, and end in a nice way. And I thought he did a great job transitioning from one direction to another out of necessity, but also sort of making it something special and touching a lot of lives. He's one of those people that always made me laugh. It's probably true for you too. You know, there's certain people that always make you laugh. He could always make me laugh, always. Yeah, last time I saw him many years ago, of course, we're talking 20 or so, maybe even 30 years ago, we met up with him at the Mall of America and spent the day just being buddies and hanging out. And uh, unfortunately he passed away two or three years ago. Is that right? 2017 or? Cancer came back, and now my my yep. remembrance of you guys, and you were very important to the rest, Speedy Brothers, because even before we had started, and we were just sort of teaming up. You guys competed in the team championship, and you became, you won the team, right? You won team championships. We we won it once in uh, 1983. We only won it because you guys couldn't spin a ball for some reason. <laughs> I think that's I, I, honestly. I, I look back and I go, that's. I mean, we did some nice things, and it was fun, you know. And I was you know I was very excited after we finished but it was like only because you guys couldn't spin a ball on your finger that's the only reason we we even won that thing i'm sure so but was that the year that you guys wore loincloths or that was a different year yeah scotty wore uh bermuda shorts and i had this sort of <laughs> ugly green oh, loincloth thing which i still have to this day and you know what i bet i bet you still could fit in it because you're, you're always so thin and always so muscular can you still fit in it i bet you can I, I can. I'm scrawny is what I am, but but I, I can still do it. But yeah. I would say scrawny. I'd say, I'd say vascular. Like, not, not veiny, you. but, you know, but built in a skinny way. Thank you. Keep talking, Dan. Keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, one trick that really inspired me and Barry that we said we're going to do that trick because you guys did it uh, was seven clubs back to back. Yeah, I like that trick. Because when you guys did it, it looked so cool. 
And you guys even did eight back-to-back in competition. Yeah, we did eight, too. And we worked on nine. We were never really that good with nine. I was pretty much the weak link with that. That was great fun for us. We just, like, loved working out with it and performing it. It was that was great tricks. I thought seven looked better because it had the kind of alternating throws. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you could make it last longer, too, so it always had a nicer feel to it. Yeah, to me, eight looks like there's two guys doing triple singles, you know, standing back-to-back or something, so I wasn't as... Uh... When you did seven, though, I'm like, that's a good-looking trick. And we took that. We stole that from you. Uh, obviously, you guys invented that, so we took it from you. Well, you guys are very inspiring to us, for sure. I mean, you guys are always so funny, and you're technical juggling, and you, know, you were role models to so many people, too, including us. So that, you know, I appreciate that, too. And you said, because of the Raspinis, I'm going to learn to spin a ball, because that's a skill I should know how to do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it came from there. Actually, it came because I, uh, I had an injury with the ladder when I first started it. And I hurt my wrist. And so I started to bounce a ball on my head because I couldn't use my hand very much. And I think the ball spinning came after that because I had, you know, a bouncing ball and that sort of thing. So necessity became the mother of invention in a way. Yeah, and you did a, a ball bouncing routine on a drum, I remember. Uh, mm-hmm. We also worked together, you and I, as solos and uh, Galveston in Texas. That's right. Dickens on the Strand. How many years have you done that? And do you still do that festival? You know, I did it for a long time. Uh, last year was the first year that I didn't do it. They sort of went a different direction with, I think they were scaling back to some degree because for different issues that they had. And so they didn't bring as many outside people. So uh, last year was the first time in maybe 30 years that I wasn't there in one shape, form or fashion, except for the year that my dad died too, a couple of years before that. So yeah, I loved, I loved that festival because I got a chance to see people like you and other performers uh mary evanoff from california mm-hmm. magical mystical michael and they brought in there was a time they brought in more outside performers so it was always very interesting yeah me and barry we set our record there uh we did 21 shows in two days 21 on the street yeah 11 on saturday and you're kidding me 21 shows yeah 11 on saturday and 10 on sunday just cranking <laughs> it out because it was so crowded that was, yes. By the time you were done with your show and you had sort of put uh-huh. your stuff back together, there was already another crowd waiting to see you. And, you. and you have to do another show if there's another crowd. There's just no way you can't do another one. So It's the law. Yeah, you have to do another one. We always say if the money's there and we're there, we're going to leave together. Exactly. And exactly. sometimes in those street situations, you have two days. And if the weather's good, it's time to crank out some shows, you know, so. Exactly. Yep. Let's go through your history as a performer, though. So you started with this sideshow. Did you then segue into working mostly with Scott, or when did the solo career really take off? We, Sideshow tried to sort of segue into more college performing and stuff, because that was sort of the thing to do at the time. We had a promo tape and things like that, but it never really took off. I'm not sure if if it's because our show wasn't quite right for that, which is possible. Also, we were sort of, I was living in Kansas City at that point. Scott was working on his comedy stand-up stuff more, and his own kind of stuff a little more as well as working with the group so i think over time the group just sort of didn't quite do it so by then i had met my wife fabiola uh, in kansas city at the renaissance fair and i had moved there after a year because it was sort of make or break for the relationship like long distance Mm -hmm. relationships are and that's when the group sideshow broke up i was already doing some performing by myself in Kansas City, but then it became a more permanent thing. And I started to work just by myself around 19, let me think, 1990, I think, 1989, I think that was. But you had one show with uh, Scott I want to talk about. I think this was with him. 
you did a, a Silver Dollar City theme park. Like it was mm-hmm. just like a hundred degrees out there and just working all day. What what part of your career was that? Was that pretty early? That was relatively early. That was around 1980, and I don't think Scott was part of that. I think I think that was just before around the time that he was slowly begin joining the group. It's when uh, that particular theme park brought in outside entertainment for the first time. So they had a knife thrower. They had a guy that did free falls from the top of a water tower. They brought him out from California, some stunt guy. And they brought us. We did like, oh, gosh, six shows a day in the heat on the streets there. Yeah, it was maniacal. And a lot of other people, too. It was very, it was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. And, but it was also another time, like every performer needs to hone what you do more, um, get more repetitions in front of people, all those sorts of things. And a little different than the Renaissance Fair. I mean, I think the theme parks are definitely more, would you call, squeaky clean. And in Renaissance Fair, you have to kind of be a little bit of body. Would you say that's a, that's a truism? You can. It depends on the performer. I mean, I, I don't cross the line, but I can no. certainly defend myself at a Renaissance Fair. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, my show is a little more closer to a family view. I work pretty clean. And certainly at Silver Dollar City, you had to be squeaky, squeaky, squeaky clean. So. I, could, I, I, I push the boundaries occasionally, but I'm not, I don't go too far in that direction. I think probably because of the environments I've worked in, you had to be a little bit cleaner. So I've kind of gone more in that direction as well. So. And since you started kind of late, what was your practice like? Did you, were you a guy who would practice four or five hours a day? Or how did you get so good with such a late start? Well, in the early days, yeah, as much as I'd practice as much as I could, you know, four or five hours a day. But then the older I got, the, the more refined it got. At this point, I'll do stretching, stationary bike for 20 minutes when I can go to the gym. Mm-hmm. And then um, probably an hour and a half of, of juggling different things because there's a variety of things. So it works aerobically and anaerobically. And then if I'm working on something new, then I'll put in maybe 15 to 30 minutes on that or more if my body can hold up. It just depends. And I try to get that just to get the foundation on the new prop as much as I can so I can kind of figure it out and get the foundation for that solid and then it gets a little better. So, so I, th- that's the problem with doing a lot of different props, unfortunately, is I have to sort of touch them a little bit with some frequency, otherwise my edge is not quite as good. And with the uh, quarantine now, I'm just working out in my backyard and so it depends on the weather, it depends on the wind, and there's a few things I can do inside, but I don't have really a big space for that. I have a, a big house, but I don't have a big space within that house. So. But, uh, you know, and I still enjoy the practicing, but I have to sort of modulate it. I was never like some of those people that could do like seven or eight hours a day and be technically that proficient on that level. I was a little bit less than that. And do you think it's important to start with some physical warm-up? I mean, you ride the bike, you do some stretching. Has that always been part of your, your technique to warm up yourself physically before you get to the juggling? Yeah, when I go to the gym particularly, because I'm kind of a scrawny guy, I do have some stretching to help with the hamstrings so my back doesn't get tight. And then everything's good from there. Because I do a lot of things with my legs, rolling globe, unicycle, standing, all these different things. So I need to keep that kind of stretched out too. And then the bicycle just sort of warms me up a little bit. And then once I start, I'm already kind of ready. Brian, remember, not scrawny, vascular. <laughs> all I can see is like, it's like veins sticking out all over my body, <laughs> which is probably the case. <laughs> Vascular. I'll have to put that in my promo. Bob the, Brian, the, the most vascular juggler in Kansas City. I like that. I'll, I'll use that. I'll credit you on that one. You don't get to use the word vascular very often, but we've done it a few times so far today. So uh, true. You sound like a very good surgeon. Well done. Thank well you. done. Let's talk about some more <laughs> career highlights. 
Uh, one job that intrigues me is you worked for the Kansas City Symphony. Were you talking? Were you doing the music? What was that show like? Jeez, I think it was around 2001. I looked it up one time. It was a Magic of Christmas show, and they had a lot of, a wide range of performers as part of the, as well as the symphony itself in Kansas City here. They had a huge puppet apparatus, this huge house that they built, and they had a whole thing they did with that. They had dancers, they had uh, singers. What, what routines did you do? What kind of props did you do? Well, they dressed me up. The repertory theater here dressed me in this incredible Harlequin costume with this huge kind of curled hat and so there were limitations to what i could do because of the costuming but i came out on the rolling globe i did some ball spinning soccer ball kind of stuff i think i did diablo it was stuff that was relatively presentational it was only a three-minute routine in music and then i also did a piece where i interacted with these young sort of modern dancers to some classical music which scared the crap out of me because I'm not used to working with other people in that way. You know, the responsibility to be somewhere at a certain mark and all those things. And, and uh, that kept me up at night listening to the music. And it was both exciting and terrifying at the same time. But it was a wonderful experience. Very professional people. I love being backstage at events like that, just mm -hmm. to seeing how things work and seeing what other people are like and very generous and very kind to me. And I've heard that the Kansas City Symphony is Kansas City's best symphony. So <laughs> it is, it is. They are, they call them Bob the, no, they don't do that. Yeah, they, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But it's a fun kind of job though. It's a little bit different. It's a perform to live music in a nice theater like that. Let's talk about some different kind of performance. Let's talk about opening acts. That's another market you did. Uh, who are some of the acts you opened for and any kind of stories or experiences opening for hostile crowds? In my early days, I did some with some other people as well here in Kansas City. I haven't done a lot of that. It hasn't been my forte like, with yourselves or other people. But I did do, what was it? Guess, the Guess Who came through one time mm -hmm. to Kansas City, and I did an opening act for them. Are they American Woman? American Woman? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a lot of good songs. It wasn't the original group completely, but they came through town, and uh, it was one of those shows where I just fought through it the whole time. I could never quite get the audience on my side. They weren't really there to see me. And it was like, sure. oh, it was, it was, I was happy to do it. And it was on the credentials. But as you know, not every show connects in that way that you hope or want or need it to. And that was one of those. But it, but it was fun. I, you know, and I stayed afterwards and listened to them. And it was fun in that way. I heard they had the, the original drummer's brother. And that was their oh, big, that, that was their big selling could, point. That could be, that could be. <laughs> a lot of that, we, like we worked with the Drifters and it was like, they had no the original Drifters, but they had like the second tier and, you know, those acts went on and on. Yeah, the opening act market that me and Barry did for like 10 years oh, totally yeah. vanished. It totally vanished. So it's not even a market that people really talk about nowadays, but people used to have, bring openers with them. You know, headliners used oh, to sure. and bring a comedian or a singer and uh, even jugglers sometimes. So. Oh, yeah, you guys had a you got a great run with that. You guys did it for so many great people too. That must have been a lot of fun. It was because, like you said, the the venues were nice. They put your name up on the marquee. Mm -hmm. So you really felt like you were, and you were hanging out with celebrities. You kind of felt like you were in show business. Mm -hmm. And you were. And sometimes their celebrity friends would come back. And like one time mm -hmm. we were opening for uh, Dennis Miller and uh, Brooke Shields, and she was married to Andre Agassi at the time. Oh she sure. Came backstage, and you're like, I'm in show business. Mm -hmm. Renaissance fairs, you know, we did those for many years. We did those with you for many years. Opening acts, that kind of stuff. It's a tough environment, but in the opening acts, you do you feel like I'm this close to being away from the little kid's table of show business into the <laughs> the bigger. Because as jugglers, it's hard to break through. I don't think 
maybe the Karen exactly. Mossops have been the one that have broken through the most. Mm. But, but we're often put in situations where people aren't there to see us or to see mm. jugglers. Right. That's why I gave you that compliment because people don't come to see us. But some jugglers, when they do see, oh, there's jugglers, I don't want to see this. But then they go, oh, that was really good. They were really funny. And we're able to change their opinion of juggling, even if they weren't there to see us in the first place. And you're mm-hmm. one of those guys. Yeah, the rapport with the audience. I'm not the funniest guy out there, but I'm personable. And that's my connection with the audience, I think. At least that's my approach. And the older I get, the more comfortable in my skin I've gotten. Once I get going, I, I can do almost anything because it's. I understand what works for me and because I'm comfortable with that almost any situation can work at this point I think your catchphrase kind of sums it up too because it says juggling comedy energy Mm -hmm. when I see you perform you're one of those guys that gives like you give the audience your energy you don't lay back you're you're sweating (laughs) you're trying hard you know Yeah, I do sweat a lot now. That's true. Yes, no, but it's true. I, I feel you know. It doesn't matter what the size of the of the performance is or what the the client is. They all deserve the same effort. They all deserve the same energy. They all deserve the same effort. Otherwise, I feel like I'm shortchanging them and I'm shortchanging myself. That's your that's your ethic. That's you know that's your work ethic. Because like mm-hmm. you say, whether big show or small show, the guys who have work ethic always try to deliver. They always try to do their best. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about another friend you had a chance to work with, and maybe there's a story behind this. Uh, you got to work at some street shows with Arsène, Arsène Dupont in yes. Paris. That must have been magical. What was that like with Arsène? Oh, I think Arsène has street performed with all kinds of people that have come through his life at different times. I, Sir Waldo, yeah. like Waldo, Danny Lord. I think all kinds of people over time. Just even now, I think he has women that are part of his Renaissance shows and they do things. And yeah, no, he was very kind to me. It was a show at the uh, Bobo at the Pompidou Center, which has all the big colorful tubing on the outside, the modern museum. He let me do one or two shows with him, and and the shows were okay. I only had a few props. I was traveling. Uh, Fabio and I were doing a three-month backpacking through Europe sort of thing, and we ended up in Paris at some point, and that's where we sort of connected in that particular way. And I just watched everybody on the street, and it was great fun with him doing that. We even did some did some private party somewhere. So we're driving this little car through the streets of Paris, <laughs> the suburbs somewhere. Some and I was you know, I said, you know, you know when it's surreal when you're doing things like that? It's like I know I'm doing this, but I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where we're and you end up doing it and it's like, did I really do that? It was some <laughs> small little show, but it was great fun. And the best show I ever saw, the best one, and our son still makes me laugh. I watch his videos and he's one of those people that still makes me laugh too, was David Shiner. Mm. who was a clown, a world-famous clown. I saw, him, I saw him initially in New Orleans, where he was doing the thing where he would imitate people when they walked by. Then years later, I see him in Paris. He's doing a, an Italian clown kind of show to probably a thousand people. And he's doing like a director of a movie. And he gets people from the audience and directs them in a film, so to speak. And that's the shtick that he does. And then years later, he's doing the same routine, more rarefied, with Cirque du Soleil. And then I, I saw that he was doing more things, directing shows at Cirque du Soleil and other things like that. And so for me, it was like this guy that I saw that just killed it on the street, kept ascending, finding his level, pushing his creativity. I mean, like you guys, like the Respines did, like many other people do. And it was just very inspiring and, and fun to see. Yeah, I saw him, uh, David Shiner. Uh, he's also with Bill Irwin in that show, Full Moon. Was a very good show. Oh yeah, how did you like that? I I never got a chance to see that. Loved it. You know, I, I'm a big clowning fan, but I'm also a, mm-hmm. a big clowning snob. Like, there's only a few people I really like, 
Avner, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Irwin, you know, David Shiner. So, because yeah. that ability to capture the audience, just you silently on stage by yourself, that presence like, like Avner has or a Bill Irwin and, and mm-hmm. Arsene as well. Arsene has that magical, he can just yeah. be funny just standing there, you know. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you one of my favorite Arsene stories? Sure, tell me. Okay, it's short, it's short. He used to come to a lot of festivals, uh, be a big part of the IGA in the 80s, Arsene. He was also named, yeah. known as DTA. He had, he had a few names. Mm. Now he's Magicana. But sure. uh, there was a juggler named Benji Hill who used to compete sure. a lot and be a big uh, presence. Uh, he had some issues and, and not really a person uh, that many people associate with anymore. But at the time, everybody was very friendly and, and Benji, Benji would compete. Very good juggler. He competed one year. And then he didn't do very well. And afterwards, we're going in the car with our sen, and Benji goes, "Well, I biffed," meaning you know, he, we, that was a term we used to use that biffing was was dropping, right? Right. But our sen goes, "But Benji, you biff like you never biffed before." <laughs> but we go to Seven Eleven, we get you a big glup, you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> but Benji, you biff like you never biff. <laughs> If you're going to biff, biff big, exactly. I don't know why I remember that all these years. But Benji, you biff like you've never biff. We get you a big glove, you feel better. (laughs) Hey, you mentioned another guy that has to be mentioned a little bit more because he's another one of these sort of characters that goes under the radar, especially for most jugglers, Danny Lord. Who is Danny Lord and, and what is Danny Lord to you? Danny Lord was one of the, I forgot to mention him. I apologize, Danny, if you're listening. Uh, He was one of the, no, he was one of the early sideshow people as well. So he did his mime and he did some juggling and things like that. But he was one of those people that had the energy. He was always like hyperactive and just had all this energy when he performed. And I think that in part is where that energy on my uh, moniker may have come from in, in some way. He added a lot to Sideshow at the time. Uh, and he also, I think they did, I'm trying to think. There was a time Sideshow did both the Minnesota and Kansas City Fair. We split up into two different groups. I think he probably did. Maybe he did Minnesota as well during that time. He was sometimes like a wild, like a wild animal. He didn't quite know exactly what Danny was going to do. So if you were a partner at Danny's, sometimes it was good because it added all this energy. But sometimes it's like, where where is it going now with this? So, But he was always nice to me. And he was always... Uh, an inspiration and the way that he just always went after it you know he, he didn't let it come to him he went after it himself and that was that was pretty cool inspiration for me so he's still around I, I, I think he's in California I think maybe doing more magic stuff or something else right now I'm not yeah, I think sure it's exactly. more of like a path show like he did a lot of renaissance fairs you at first on the stages working with Arsene uh, working with Johnny Fox Mm-hmm. He's one of the just a crazy guy. He had energy on stage, but he also had a lot of energy off stage. Exactly. And, and yeah. would often be pulling pranks. And he's the guy that mm-hmm. blew down the salt shaker when he went to a restaurant. And... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I always I always divide performers up into two camps. One, the people that perform all the time, yeah, like Danny, and then other performers that they have to sort of they turn on the persona, they turn on the energy or whatever when they go on stage, and then off stage maybe they're quieter, like. Maybe Johnny Carson, a lot, oh, myself, but lots of people like that. There's different ways that people get into this whole scene. Yeah, there's definitely people who are on, and there's definitely people who turn it on. Exactly. And, uh, I think I'm kind of both. I mean, there's sometimes when I like to lay back, let someone else kind of in, in social situations mm-hmm. just sort of drive the ship, and other times I'm zany, I guess. So. Okay, so you're in the middle somewhere? Yeah. I'm in the middle. But I think okay. I was a quiet, shy kid, too. I think. 
a lot of us are attracted to juggling because it's such a complete activity uh, that we can do by ourselves. Mm-hmm. And you also say that you're going to juggle till you die. Is this something you see yeah. as just like, do you ever see retiring or do you also want to perform until you die as well? I still enjoy it. And as long as my body holds out and my energy holds out, I'd like to continue for a while. Financially, you know, the house is paid for and Mm -hmm. things like that. But it'd be good for me to work for a little while longer yet. I'm on Medicare now. So my sort of internal goal is till 70. And then after that, we'll see what happens. You know, life sometimes will give you a direction you don't expect. So it's not in my control necessarily. But that's what I would like to do because I really like it. You know, I've, I've been so lucky. You know, my performing has allowed me to find... Fabiola. Uh, it's allowed me to find a career. My home is because of, you know, meeting Fabiola. That's why I'm in Kansas City. And I've met some wonderful people, wonderful creative people that, you know, I never would have met except for this. And so I always consider myself lucky that the shy guy found this thing that he could have a passion for. And I'm really, you know, I, yeah. you know and it's, you know, it's not rocket science and I know that, but we still and I speak for a lot of people, I, we still touch people in certain ways that we don't even know sometimes, even though we get jaded like, oh, it's a bad show or I biffed or whatever. But that doesn't mean that somebody didn't get something from it, which is why we do it. We want people to get something from it. Yeah, the shy guy did okay. He ended up okay yeah. in the end. Now, one thing about your wife, even though, um, first of all, I want to think, I want to say, I think she has the most beautiful name there is, Fabiola. You know, I told her that. I told her that after you did the pre-interview. I told her, she said, and she said, well, I remember Dan. <laughs> so, so she says hello. She remembers you guys. Yeah. So I remember she, her. She, very charming woman and very beautiful and, and so, so so nice as I remember. The thing I remember about you guys the most is your love of travel. Because mm-hmm. you guys are always traveling. Can you tell me some of the places you've been and some of the highlights of your adventures together? Wow. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot, right? Yeah. Well, a lot, a lot. Well, Fabiola is from South America, so we've gone to visit her family in Ecuador countless times. And then both of our parents, all of our parents have passed away. And since that's happened, we've traveled a little bit more in the wintertime because I've give, carved out that time for her so that we can do that. And we don't have the parental responsibilities in the same way anymore. And so we've went to uh, Asia. We went to Thailand, China, Cambodia, Bhutan, Nepal. Uh, we also went to northern Canada to see to Churchill to see the polar bears, which is oh. very cool. Part of the migratory stuff. Yeah, you're on like a, a big bus slash tractor thing with huge wheels, so it's elevated. And you can stay you can stay in town, but you can stay on these vehicles where you sleep, very small accommodations. But then you're out there all the time. And so when the bears come, you can see them whenever they happen to be around. And they're coming toward the water of, of Hudson Bay so they can migrate once it freezes up and everything changes, but they get closer while you're there. We even rode elephants in, was it, Cambodia or Thailand and took care of them and did all these things. We just got back from Chile where we went to the Atacama Desert, which is the driest desert in the world, and also went to um, Papua Nui, which is uh, Easter Island. And then I just call this place. She loves to travel. She's always had wanderlust. And what I always say is I always kind of hang on to her and just hope I can hang on while she plans. She loves planning these trips too. So, so and it's, and just, it's just the same thing as performing in a way. It's an observational way to enjoy other people and be part of their world for a while. And then you're gone for a while too. So, and it seems like a dream in some ways as well. But yeah, I love, I love traveling. I'm a good travel partner. And Fabiola is really great, too. Very little perturbs us because not everything goes as planned and you just sure. have to kind of go, that's fine. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Uh, besides Arsene, 
You ever run into any other jugglers on your trip in, in weird places? Um, I'm trying to think. Would you always bring some of your own stuff? Who is, who is the, not a juggler, I'm blanking on his name. In Copenhagen at Tivoli, we saw, Tivoli Gardens, we saw, mm-hmm. in the 80s, we saw, uh, who is the guy that did the, was the pianist that did comedy with the piano? Victor Borga? Uh, yes, Victor Borga. We saw him there once. Wow. In Bulgaria one time, we saw some guy do a wonderful plate spinning routine, you know, the classical thing, but it was, mm-hmm. it was great fun. Street performers on the streets of almost, or of a lot of cities. But you don't combine it like going to festivals. It's not like you travel to try to hit a certain juggling festival. It's just more travel for its... I never have done that quite so much. That hasn't been the driving force. We did see a lot of performing in China when we were there. Some classic, classic circus stuff. The, uh, what is the unique, uh, face changing or changing faces? Yeah, the have mask magic. Yeah, with, with the, the mask, mask thing, yeah. That yeah. was wonderful. Yeah, that was wonderful. They do it very close up to when they come out in the audience. It was wonderful. But yeah, I try to catch circuses whenever I can when we travel, but that's the main thing. We went to Russia last August, but the timing of it didn't work. I was hoping to see a circus there as well. What do you think? I mean, not to make a depressing note into it, but what do you think about the future of travel? I mean, here we are. This is the second uh, podcast I've done you know, during the quarantine. Uh, mm-hmm. It's almost May, which I think uh, the president wants to open things back up. But as mm-hmm. far as travel and as far as international travel and going to places like that, do you kind of feel like you feel happy that you've done it? Because it might not be as easy anymore. It's hard to say. You know, we had plans to go to New York in March, just before they closed the city up, to see plays and musical. Because we go every couple of years, we just see everything we can in about four or five days. We've extended that to June, but of course, it's not going to happen in June. Who knows? I, I think part of it is part of it is all of us will have to. Well, we're trying to survive through the times. Some people more economically, in other, in other ways. Mm-hmm. But I think part of it is we have to be creative about it. And these new tools that we use, Zoom and all these other things, you know, live streaming for shows or whatever, it'll become apparent what we'll need to do. And when we need to find a solution, then you find a solution. And then later on, either the solution will still be needed or it won't, or it'll be some middle ground. I'm not smart enough to know exactly what lies ahead. I'm more of the it's going to take a while camp versus the it's going to happen real fast camp. But I don't know. I think part of it is we have to just do our best to find personal and then professional solutions too for what's going on. And it may cause a lot of people to leave entertainment because you won't have venues to work. Maybe my option for doing it till I'm 70 will not be a realistic thing because my opportunities will not be the same. I don't know, but I hope that's not the case. I hope that we still are able to do what we do because there's something visceral about being with a live audience, being in front of people, and being in that audience, too. I love being part of an audience. There's nothing better. You know, my obnoxious laugh, my father's laugh <laughs> that I have, which I scared you with, I think, earlier. Uh, you know, that's just, it's a good thing to laugh. It's a good thing to be part of that communal experience. Um, we still have them electronically, yeah. but I'm hoping that we can still have them in person, you know, because I think that's an important connection that we all have to have. You know, we came back from Europe just before they banned people from coming back in March. You know, and and, in Netherlands, they kiss three times when you greet somebody. You kiss everybody. I'm sure they're, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's crazy now with, in Latin America too. It's crazy that you don't have that ability to connect 
or greet or say goodbye or share food or, no, or, or yeah. share food or anything. Yeah. You know, and you get closer to the people that you're with and find ways to navigate perhaps too much time together too. But it's one of those unknowns, you know, it happened a hundred years ago with influenza. It's happening to us now. I'm thinking that they'll find the vaccine and that over time it will be a better situation, but it's going to take time. So we're all going to learn a lot of patience at the same time. Something that every juggler knows because it takes time for a juggler to learn anything. So it's the same thing with this. You just kind of keep moving forward and add pieces to it and see what happens. Yeah, we got to keep up our practice, keep up our skills. So when the time comes, we'll be ready to get out there and and hit the ground running and get people entertainment again. Which is a hard thing. You're kind of like me, though. I feel that that juggling changed your life. Like you're on a certain path, you're a quiet kid or whatever. You discover juggling, you realize, oh, this is the thing, right? This is the thing mm-hmm. that's going to change my life. When you look back on it, what do you think about juggling and how that that affected your life? And what, where do you think you'd be without juggling? What is juggling to Brian Wendling? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't be as... Oh, what's the word you use? Verico- no, that's what I was saying. Varicose veins. Vascular. Um, <laughs> vascular. Vascular. Yes. I wouldn't be as vascular. Especially I'd be pretty arms. active. Yeah. That's true. I'd still be active. My dad was like that too. If I didn't have juggling, I would probably be either a teacher or a social worker or somewhere in the broad range of helping professions because I was kind of heading in that direction. But because I found it, it's given me opportunities to grow as a person because being on stage forces one to get beyond one's comfort levels at times, especially early in one's career, even late in one's career too. It gave me opportunity to learn new skills, which pushes my boundaries too, to meet people in different environments that allow me to respect people in different environments that I may not be part of, may not be close to, but nonetheless, I'm part of for a while. So it allows me to respect people in that way. And it also allows me to respect people that have jobs that are not mine. I I value work no matter what it is. That's why I say I'm blue collar. I don't care if you're, and even these days, particularly grocery store, truck driver, any repair person, any, anybody that works to me has value and it's not what you do, but it's how you do it. And it's the person that you are while you do it. So for me, juggling has just been a conduit to become a better person in some ways. And it's given me a livelihood that I, didn't expect and i didn't expect to do it this long that's for sure but i'm very grateful for i'm really grateful for you uh, brian for sharing the time coming on the podcast i look forward to the day we can get together again and shake hands and and hang out you know as as a couple old jugglers i really appreciate (laughs) you i appreciate your talent and your show and all the entertainment you've brought and also all the good feelings and the good i don't know how to say it but the good approach you've had to juggling like i say everyone who sees you I think enjoys juggling and gets an idea of what juggling is really like. And I appreciate you and I appreciate you being on Drop Everything. Thanks, Brian. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy Drop Everything podcast number 81, my conversation with Mr. Brian Wenling. Thank you, Brian. Class act all the way. Best wishes to you and Fabiola for a continued wonderful life. All right, let's thank our sponsor one more time, the IJA, International Juggling Association. I really appreciate them giving me this forum to create this library of conversations with so many wonderful jugglers. All right, now go out there and drop everything, except when you're juggling. Stay safe, stay healthy. All the best from Drop Everything Podcast, me and my wife, Karen. We appreciate you, we thank you, and we hope you all stay safe and healthy.